If you're looking for a way to help birds or take your support to the next level, this May, I would love for you to join the Birds Canada Birdathon. It's easy to participate in and helps raise thousands of dollars for bird conservation. Learn more at birdscanada.org slash birdathon. Now let's get to the episode. You're listening to The Warblers, a Birds Canada podcast. I'm Andrea Gress. Join me and others as we travel on common flight paths with our guests, gaining insights and inspiration from the world of birds and bird conservation in Canada. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of The Warblers podcast. If you've been listening to our wake-up call episodes where we learn about different at-risk bird species from across Canada, you might have started to notice a trend in what is threatening these birds. Many of our at-risk species suffer from larger-scale habitat loss as a result of human activities. Things like developing beaches and altering shorelines impact piping plovers and red knots, or logging old-growth forests can impact marbled murrelets in BC or the Bicknell's thrush in New Brunswick. And I find that this can start to get a little overwhelming when we hear the same basic message over and over, that our birds are threatened by habitat loss, that we need to protect habitats. But how do we do that? In today's episode, we're learning about one relatively new tool to protect larger-scale habitats, and that is called Indigenous Protected and Conserved Areas. We're headed to New Brunswick to learn a little more about what Indigenous Protected and Conserved Areas are and how they tie into Indigenous-led conservation. We can learn a lot about habitat conservation by looking to Indigenous leadership. Today we have Gordon Gray, Jamie Gorman, and Kelsey Butler with us to help us explore what Indigenous-led conservation is and how it may help benefit the species that we care about. This is a really huge topic, and we're only scratching the surface here, just hoping to bring some awareness to tools and concepts that we believe will help to drive bird conservation in Canada. All right, can we start by having you each introduce yourselves? Maybe we'll start with Gordon. Good day. My name is Gordon Gray. I am a member of the Kingsclear Band, uh, or Billich, and uh, I also work for the Wollstoke Way Nation in New Brunswick. So I'm the Impact Assessment Manager for the Wollstoke Way Nation in New Brunswick. Essentially what that means is that I translate environmental impacts into adverse impacts to Aboriginal treaty rights and, and try to mitigate against them. That's fantastic. And Jamie, tell us about yourself. Quay, yeah. So my name is Jamie Gorman. I am from Tobik, Nukutkuk First Nation, and I am the Resource Development Consultation Coordinator for my community. We are in the work of, as Gordon said, trying to uh, mitigate and lessen the impacts that uh, projects have on the territory and, and, and their subsequent impacts to rights, not only now, but in the future. Fantastic. And Kelsey? Hi, my name is Kelsey Butler, and I am the Director of Atlantic Conservation Programs for Birds Canada. Um, I am also a settler on uh, Willistic Way territory. I've lived here my whole life, and um, I previously worked in consultation and conservation for the Willistic Way Nation in New Brunswick, and that's how I know Gordon and Jamie. I had the amazing privilege to work with them for about three years. Gordon and Jamie and I are all currently 
on the land that's called New Brunswick. And so this is situated on the unceded and unsurrendered territories of the Wolastiquig, Mi'kmaq, and Pesamukati. And these Indigenous nations and their territories are governed by the Treaties of Peace and Friendship, which did not deal with the surrender of lands, waters, or resources. In fact, they recognized title and established rules for what was to be an ongoing relationship between the Indigenous nations and the British Crown. For our listeners who are less familiar with the area we're talking about, the Wallistiquay Nation extends roughly across the western half of New Brunswick, with traditional territories extending into a significant portion of Maine as well. Now getting back into the topic of discussion for today, which is Indigenous-led conservation. So... When we talk about Indigenous-led conservation, what exactly are we talking about and why is it important? Well, Indigenous-led conservation is essentially what it sounds like, Indigenous-led conservation. Uh, Initiatives and and, uh, stewardship essentially based in the jurisdiction of Indigenous folks uh, and central to protecting and and promoting their rights. Uh, uh, Why is it important? Uh, well, essentially, the protection and promotion of Aboriginal treaty rights is uh, the protection and promotion of the environment. Um, it's something everybody enjoys, something that everybody uh, needs. Mm-hmm. Benefits all of us and our birds. Gotta love them. <laughs> uh, a new term that we've been hearing a lot is Indigenous protected and conserved areas. I'd love to get into it a little bit. It's often shortened to IPCAs. So IPCAs are quickly becoming a key strategy for environmental protection and conservation in Canada. In the fall of 2022, the federal government pledged $800 million to support four Indigenous-led conservation areas, covering up to a million square kilometers of land and water. So really significant. So what is an Indigenous-protected and conserved area? Uh, and what is the significance of IPCAs in New Brunswick and beyond? A circle of Indigenous experts were, uh, wrote a report. It's called the ICE Report. And uh, this is where the term had sort of uh, came out, these IPCAs. We were first made aware of these terms probably five or six years ago. They're allowing us to create the own governance structure. So through our own process with, with elders and knowledge holders and language keepers and youth and elder to get people out on the land um, and, and teaching and sharing story and having ceremony on the land is a way of reintegrating our relationships with all our kin, the birds, the insects. So it, it becomes a way that we are able to uh, utilize our worldview in creating a structure to protect and, and conserve land. And have you found it to be a really useful tool in New Brunswick? Ah. Uh, no, okay. um, <laughs> but but we're going to get there. I mean, we we are facing a lot of sort of government resistance to these ideas because you know the idea of shared stewardship is a, is a threat to I guess uh, uh, provincial sovereignty. So yeah, we face a bit of hostility, I guess, from you know GNB on this process. But we do you know seem to have a relatively better relationship with the federal government, and regardless of provincial predilections at the moment, this is still going to be the process that most people are going to follow to, to, to move this conversation forward and to get more lands protected and conserved, but also with our with our hand involved in it. So we're, we're, we're part of this restoration. We're not creating these 
fancy parks that nobody go to. We want to bring people in. And this is where you could get a little bit of maple syrup. You could make a black ash basket or you could gather some medicine and elderberry syrup and these sort of things. And when you're showing them and incorporating them and telling them story, and this becomes a better way we feel we do conservation because it's more aligned with our worldview. So regardless of our present frustrations, I still believe the idea is a uh, that's really important. Yeah. And like the idea of bringing people into nature to experience it and be a part of it, interacting with the land, that is so, so important. You know, people don't have the incentive to protect something that they don't understand and don't appreciate. So it, it sounds like this is so valuable for conservation goals. Absolutely. Absolutely. So a term that pops up a lot in these kinds of conversations is stewardship. And I'm wondering what stewardship means from an Indigenous perspective. Well, I think stewardship in, in the Indigenous light is uh, really protecting, as Jamie said, for uh, all of creation, you know, not just human use, um, you know, the, the fish and the birds and the bees and the, yeah, bears, um, everything, everything has a value. One of the things my grandfather always said is that uh, the world would be fine without us, uh, but we are dependent upon everything in the world. Uh, and so that makes us have to reciprocate. It makes us have to uh, look after them uh, because they look after us. Um, that's one of the reasons that uh, offerings are typically made when we go out hunting, um, just because, you know, it's giving the ultimate sacrifice. And um, again, speaking to the intrinsic value in its life. So stewardship is protecting everything, uh, essentially the function, uh, ecosystem, and, and uh, individuals. Yeah, I like thinking of stewardship that way. Humans aren't above any other species, and in fact, our well-being is directly linked to everything in the ecosystem around us. So that interconnectivity has me thinking about how protecting culturally significant sites can naturally end up protecting ecologically significant sites as well, which, of course, in turn can help species that are struggling with habitat loss. So there's a really nice example of that overlap in New Brunswick, which is Mount Carlton and the Bicknose Thrush. If listeners don't know much about the Bicknose Thrush, you can go back and find an entire wake-up call episode on that species. Mount Carlton is a culturally significant area that the Bicknose Thrush also uses. Jamie, I'm wondering if you could tell us more about this location and its significance to the Wallistic Way people. Wow, yes, I would love to. I mean, I sort of want to adopt the Bicknose Thrush as a bit like my spirit animal. And oh. I don't mean to be trite with that terminology and stuff, but I, knowing that it needs habitat protection, it's really emblematic of, of what we need. So Mount Carlton is a big, it's the, it's the highest point in the territory. Uh, four major river systems start um, from that area, and it was an important meeting place for the chiefs. Um, the, you know the portage routes and these. So people would talk about you know hunting and species availability and resource, and there was just information sharing. So um, it's a big, beautiful park. It hasn't been cut, you know, since the twenties. Um, so it has. Uh, older growth forest in there um sadly all around the park um it's done a, there's been a lot of intensive harvesting and clear cutting i was lucky enough to do uh one of the indigenous land use studies that gordon had referenced earlier in our work at, for mount carlton so i got to interview 
people who had used the park. And, you know, through some of this interview processes, they were talking about, you know, things like uh, algae in the, in the lake and the, in the warm water that a lot of the cold water that was feeding this lake is no longer cold. So the, the landlocked salmon population uh, was less. And, you know, and obviously we're getting these uh, blooms, these algae blooms in the lake. There, there was usually a lot of cold water inputs into this lake. So the water stayed cold. And one of the recommendations that came out of this Indigenous land use study was actually to have these zones of influence so that we could actually just try to do select cutting around the park so that we could protect the park. Because, again, our study was focused on the temporal boundaries of the park and trying to understand impacts from there. But in my first interview, I realized that the park is just part of an ecosystem and it, it, what happens outside the park is having impacts in the park. So you can't just talk about impacts from a park perspective. And it- Mount Carlton is our biggest park. And even then, like, as Jamie was saying, you can feel the impacts from all of the um, development that's happening outside the park. And I think it really just pushes home this idea that nature doesn't know borders, it doesn't know bounds. And so I think that's part of this whole movement where we have to rethink the way that, you know, conservation has been done in the past and really try to open our minds and, um, you know, listen to what other people are telling us and, you know, listen to what nature is literally showing us from like this example alone. I couldn't agree more. Jamie gave a great example of how algae blooms are forming in the park due to activities occurring outside of the park. There's a lot we can learn from looking at the ecosystem as a whole. Jamie, I wonder if you have other examples of things we're learning from the Mount Carlton area. You know, there's stories that came out about caribou migration routes that are on the mountains, and you can see their hoof marks in the granite because it had been happening for 10,000 years, these caribou migrations, and caribou were a big part, but we lost them in the early 1900s uh, due to overhunting and disease. That's so interesting. I'm not a geologist at all, but there is something really fascinating about what geology can teach us about an area. You must also be uncovering stories of how Indigenous people were using the land as well. Oh, like, yeah, there's archaeological sites. So there's, you know, there's some sites that go back 5,000 years. But archaeology became a really important tool for my work and a guiding sort of force. Like once I started thinking about the tools that are made there, and then you start looking at the, at the landscape different and where, where people started to build their villages and, and why, and you're getting pieces of the story through archaeology, and then you're ideally connecting it with oral tradition and other stories, but this, this, uh, the archeological sites in the park are just, um, oh, they, they, they just help center me in my territory and in my work and everything we're doing in relationship and restoring and revitalizing relationships, I think is the key thing that I was taking, like, you know, um, a lot of our, um, uh, plant gatherers would go up there. There's, uh, because it's, um, relatively unpolluted up there. Uh, there's a feeling that the medicines are stronger and cleaner and purer. So people want to go to the park to get medicines they could get locally. But the idea that they're getting it in a place where there's bigger trees and more animals and cleaner water, that the medicine has more uh, strength to heal. And again, that ties into one this conservation and, and, and repairing, you know, our relationships with the land is it, it just has all these flow down effects, and I, um, I'm, we're hoping to use these stories and these connections and these interactions and collaborations to help 
tell that story more. And, you know, and, and I believe a process of a podcast like this is, is a similar way to, to, you know, uh, put some seeds out there and, 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 you know, nourish them a little bit so they germinate. And, you know, it starts with asking questions and talking. Yeah. Indigenous protected and conserved areas is a really new concept for people, but we're putting the seeds out there, right? Getting, getting it on people's radars. Hopefully it'll grow and flourish and people will have a greater understanding. So how can conservation organizations like Birds Canada um, or other bigger, smaller ones as well, how can they help Indigenous protected and conserved areas and Indigenous-led conservation move forward? I think Birds Canada is a great organization myself, uh, just because of the in-house expertise they provide to so many. Um, And I think that's really one of the central themes here is that we can lean on, uh, you know, your expertise uh, when it comes to uh, identifying, you know, conservation values in in land that uh, might otherwise be marginalized. Uh, And that's something that we see very often, uh, like... We, we have an ethnobotanist on staff uh, who, who identifies, you know, uh, culturally important species uh, of plants, um, you know. So he, he, he essentially has a list of about 1,500 species, which is far outstrips sort of the regular consultant's list of species at risk and species of conservation concern. Um, so any time that we get more information about an area, I think it, it really uh, fuels that uh, yeah, so IPCA identifying uh, conservation value in, in a landscape, uh, and even just in duty consult uh, framework itself, uh, I think is important. Um, yeah, just because we're notified of projects all the time uh, because of the duty consult, and, and you guys have information that we can lean on. Uh, I think that's a, a great start, at least. Uh, recognition, acknowledgement is, is other keys, I think, as well. Yeah, it's a an opportunity for us to really share knowledge and, and help each other out. Yeah, I, I mean, like the Bicknell's thrush information, like I think it could be really useful for us from uh, the work we do. And we would like to see real value in using what it needs to help us further what we're trying to do. We want to tap into your guys' expertise and, and what you guys know about birds and habitat. And I am super scared of the loss of birds that is happening in the last uh, decade or so. And mm-hmm. um, I think we're a bit blind to the impacts we're having on the planet. Yeah, we really need to work together. I mean, we've lost 30% of the birds in North America since the 1970s. So it's like 3 billion birds gone. And people notice it, you know, like you you just, you chat with people and they say, yeah, like I'm just not seeing as many killdeer around as I used to or you know, just birds that were once common, people are starting to really notice. Yeah. I think it's easy to sometimes work in a silo and when you're focusing on birds um, and, you know, you kind of get deep down into what's going on, but trying to break from those silos and work together so that, you know, the impact that we both have, you know, as an organization to an organization or, you know, Birds Canada with, an Indigenous community together can have a much larger impact than anything we can do on our own. And I think that's kind of like the really great thing about IPCAs and promoting Indigenous-led conservation is understanding that we're just a small piece of kind of like a greater puzzle. Um, And just, you know, not being afraid to um, 
let someone else take the lead and, you know, just acknowledging um, other other ways of knowing and different types of knowledge, I guess, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess uh, I guess I see value in birds uh, in, in particular, just because like they they are essential in all sort of habitat types, right? So if you're protecting birds, then you are really protecting everything. So that's uh, just a, a little shout out to birds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I think the core values of indigenous led conservation work that way as well, where you're protecting large scale landscapes, and then that protects the birds too, right? Absolutely. So how could people learn more about some of the things we've discussed today? Well, uh, the Wollstokeway Nation New Brunswick is a technical body uh, of, of the six uh, Wollstokeway communities in, in New Brunswick. And uh, we have all sorts of information available uh, concerning sort of IPCAs and, and Indigenous-led stewardship. Uh even if uh, people are that interested in particular developments and projects, I'm, cer- I'm certain that we can lend uh, some information regarding them as well. Uh, I-, I know that uh, I've had a number of people reach out and, and individually, uh, non-Indigenous uh, folks, uh, you know, really endearing themselves to Indigenous-led uh, criticisms of projects, I guess, uh, just because like they, they really strike at the heart of protecting uh, everything. Right. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that could be found at wolstaway.ca. Oh yeah. We'll have that in the show notes. You better okay. believe it. <laughs> this has been a really interesting discussion. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you guys would like to chat about and like to share? Just the importance of collaboration, uh, reaching out and collaborative, you know, shared, goals um and it's you know just to touch a bit on like what kelsey said about the siloization of you know these conservation and the, the nature conservancy and the nature trusts and you know uh wwf and ducks unlimited and you know we want to bring all these people into a room and uh i just feel like there's a lot of natural affinities uh, for us to, to achieve uh, mutually uh, desired outcomes. And, but it, it, it takes that initial, that initiative to, to knock on the doors or send an email, you know, let's work together. The Warblers is a podcast of Birds Canada. Our goal is to bring you the information you need to discover, enjoy, and protect birds. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, leave a review, and share this podcast with everyone you know. Birds Canada relies on the support of donors like you. Visit birdscanada.org slash warblerspodcast to make a donation today. The Warblers is produced by Jody Allaire, Kate Dogleash, Chris Koo and Andrea Gress with music by Jose Mora and art by Alex Nichol. Until next time, keep birding.